Explore, engage your curiosity and get switched on to learning. You're listening to a lecture from the Enfield Thinks pop-up learning series by Bert Beck, University of London. So first of all, before we can even really think about why some people are happier than others, we need to know what we're talking about here. What is happiness? Some researchers have said it's a mental or emotional state of well-being, something that's characterised by the presence of positive emotions. And the idea is that those, those positive emotions, they could range in intensity. So you could have anything from kind of mild contentedness right up to joy, elation, really, really intensive positive emotion. Um, so it's a spectrum, isn't it, of, of different positive emotions. And other people have talked about things like well-being, and actually you mentioned that at the start, doing things that are good for your health, good for your well-being. This might relate to things like feeling healthy, achieving our goals, um, having relationships, getting a sense of meaning and purpose in our lives, in our work, a sense of independence, growth, self-acceptance. So quite a few different aspects to that. And I think the general idea is that happiness is a byproduct. So we don't tend to wake up, well, some of us might, but um, I don't. <laughs> we don't just wake up and think, wow, I'm so happy. I don't know if anyone's had that. Sometimes we might, but generally, no. It's a byproduct in the sense that it comes about as a feeling when we're doing something else. It comes about when we're doing something that we enjoy or are engaged in or gives us a sense of meaning, accomplishment. And um, a closely aligned term is life satisfaction. So one of the key theorists um, and key authors and writers and researchers in this field is called Martin Seligman. And initially he was talking about a sort of happiness and life satisfaction as really sort of separate things. And he was asking people, you know, how, how happy are you? And he realised he was rather measuring life satisfaction. How satisfied are you with your life? And that does seem to be something that's closely aligned. If we look back on the, the whole of our life, how happy are we with it? Life satisfaction. And I don't know if anyone took part in this, but the Office for National Statistics a few years ago actually sent out a survey and was asking people, how happy are you? I don't know if anyone took part in it. Um, so they were asking overall, to what extent are you happy in your life right now? So these are the sorts of questions that researchers ask, and as you can tell, they're not you know, rocket science questions. They're, they're pretty down-to-earth and understandable. And we thought about happiness on a continuum, so kind of mild, content, all the way up to joy, elation, really, really super positive, happy um, emotions. But positive feeling or happiness also happens over time, also has a kind of temporal component to it. So we might be thinking about positive emotions related to the past. So these might be feelings like a sense of satisfaction, uh, how content we are with how things have been so far in our lives, a sense of fulfilment, pride, serenity. So these are all positive emotions that psychologists think are kind of connected with the past, thinking about the past. And then there's positive emotions connected with the future. 
So this might be things like optimism, hope, uh, how confident we feel about our abilities, how much faith and trust we have. And then, of course, in the middle of that, not the past, not the future, it's the present, isn't it? So positive emotion that we experience in the present moment. So how much pleasure we experience at, the, at any one time, how much um, uh, gratification we might have in a particular situation uh, at the very moment. So hopefully you'll be feeling a bit of positive emotion during this talk, I hope so. Uh, and I hope you also have lots from the past and the future too. It is a bit of a mixed picture. What we do know is that our living conditions have significantly improved over the last hundred years. Thank goodness we're not sending children um, up chimneys and getting them to work at a young age. Um, we have a lot higher quality of life. Um, but unfortunately, what we have seen, even though we're doing better in terms of living longer, our levels of happiness probably haven't increased and there's some evidence to suggest that actually it might have gone down. But what we have to do is to really delve into the literature. We've got to go into that research and really find out what's going on. And what it looks like is that if we think about our happiness related to our physical health um, our, and our work, actually these areas have gone up. People are reporting higher levels of happiness in those areas. So that's good news. On the other hand, if we think about our levels of happiness around our, our family, our friends, how we feel about our communities, our mental health, these are some of the areas where people are reporting lower levels of happiness. Bit of a mixed picture, some going up, some going down, but generally it looks as though it might might not be heading in the right direction. We'd want it to be going up, wouldn't we? Depends on which survey you look at, which study you look at. But I've got these data here, which are from a study conducted in 1996, which pulled together lots of different questionnaires from all over the world. In fact, let me get this right, it was uh, involving over one million people in 45 different nations. And they looked, on average, what people were scoring on those questionnaires. And it was about 6.75. Yeah? So people are kind of happier than not. It's a good job no one is round zero. But what I think is quite interesting on this graph is, I don't know if you've got any mathematicians in our audience, you can help me with this, but the idea is that the data are a bit skewed that way, aren't they? So more people are reporting higher scores. We've got a few people reporting lower scores, but generally the data has shifted towards that direction. And that Im indicates that most of these surveys were showing that people were scoring um, higher compared, um, rather than lower, really, in terms of their ratings of happiness. I mean, I open up newspapers all the time and there's happiest countries in the world, worst places to live, best places to live. So it, it, do, it does depend on the survey, on the study that's been conducted. This is one that was um, produced by the World Database of Happiness. And they compi compiled together this list. And they um, actually had Costa Rica at the top. Um, but as you can see, you're spot on. We've got a number of Scandinavian countries in there. Um, no England, Scotland, Ireland or Wales, unfortunately. 
Um, but we have got Mexico, we've got Canada. I think we've, we've thought about, are we getting happier? We've thought about where some of the happier people perhaps are. So let's think about now what might explain happiness, what kind of causes it. Well, one thing I've been really interested to, to find out, really, from researching this area is that actually happiness has a genetic basis. It has a... Uh, we don't know what the genes exactly are, but we do know that if we get identical twins who are clones, they're both from the same egg, um, they have the same genetic data, they're reporting more similar levels of happiness than non-identical twins. Non-identical twins are just like normal um, siblings. They're sharing about half their genes. So that gives us a bit of an idea, because these identical twins are reporting much more similar levels of happiness than non-identical twins, that there might be some sort of genetic basis to this. Another thing I was really interested in, and really sort of taken, taken by, um, was the role of environment. And I think you mentioned at the start about environment, what sort of context you're in. So if we're thinking that genes might contribute about half, might explain about half of the causes of happiness, what researchers have found is that our environment explains about 10%, which isn't actually that much. I, I was expecting it to be higher. If you had a nice environment, perhaps you'd be happier. If you had a not-so-nice environment, perhaps that would really, you know, it wouldn't enhance your happiness. Um, but I think the most important thing here is 50 plus 10 is 60. So we've still got 40% of the causes of happiness to be explained. And this is about what we do. So we can't do anything about our genes now. We've got them, yeah? We can do something about our environment, but actually it probably isn't going to change our happiness that much, given the researchers have found that it contributes to about 10% of the causes of happiness. But we can do something about the other 40%. These, this 40% encompasses the stuff we do. And that might explain why there's individual differences and individual variation in levels of happiness. So what we do actually <coughs> really does matter. And this is where positive psychology comes in. So positive psychology is a field of psychology that tries to look at what might explain happiness, what might make people happier, um, what people's strengths are, focusing on people's strengths rather than what they might lack, their deficits, and um, rather than dwelling on those negatives, it tries to research more of the positives. Um, and it suggests that what we need to do is enhance our strengths and do more of the good stuff rather than focusing on what we don't have. And these are really the key factors that are present in people who report higher levels of happiness. So we might think about what we can control and what we can't control. And we've seen actually from that previous slide that at least 40% of it is up to us. We can do a lot about that. In positive psychology, we talk sometimes about a set point for happiness. And this is something that's determined perhaps by our biological makeup, by in part probably our genes. 
And this is kind of a, like a benchmark, the level of happiness that we just happen to have. Now, as we saw in that, uh, the review that pulled all the studies together about how happy on average people are, people are saying around seven. Now, what we think about in positive psychology is great. Let's, we've all got our set point, but what can we do to live above it? What are the things that we can actually do differently that work to help us live above our set point? Focus on what you've got. So do more of what you enjoy, do more of what you're good at, and do more of what you value. Now, I don't know about you, but I've read lots of self-help books, loads of books about psychology, about treatments, and I think they do have their place. Absolutely, if you're struggling with a serious mental health condition, this is not a cure. This is not a treatment. But it is something that we can all do to try and boost our levels of happiness. And as we'll go on to see, the research demonstrates that it does have a positive impact. It does work. So doing more of what you enjoy, more of what you're good at, and more of what you value. There was an interesting book published um, by Lord Layard, written by Lord Layard. And he looked at, um, from an economical point of view, really, um, in his training as an economist, what uh, some of the factors were that related to people being happier um, than average. And he, I've listed these here, actually. They are in a special order. So I didn't just kind of throw them on there. These are what Layard found in his, um, um, the research that he conducted for his book that were associated with higher levels of happiness. So at the top here was family relationships. So what we know is that from the research literature, that as long as we've got enough money to cover our basic costs, to have a roof over our head, food, warmth, um, the basic things that we need, Anything more that we get above that actually doesn't really add very much to our happiness levels, perhaps only a couple of percent. So this is the moment when we all have to feel terribly sorry for Bernie Eccleston. Despite all of his millions, he's not that much happier than us. Um, but I think that's quite an important point. It's a bit like a recipe, isn't it? If one of the ingredients is missing, then the, the final product isn't going to be what you would hope it to be. Yeah, exactly. It's a really, really um, great point, actually, about the bigger picture of this research. The idea that all of these components are vital. Some may be influencing happiness more than others, but all of them are influencing happiness in their own right. And in the mix, all of them together, we are unneeded. Yeah, absolutely. I was quite interested to see that work was so high up. And I, I think on reflection, looking at the literature, it's something to do about it providing you with a, a social support network, social connections, using your skills, hopefully, um, and a sense of purpose and meaning. And it's also an opportunity for those flow experiences, these times when you're really absorbed in something. Um, so if you have any of those at work, try and intersperse them with the kind of more mundane tasks so that you can try and kind of keep your mood up over the day. So we've also got here community and friends, our health, physical and mental health, personal freedom and personal values. 
I hope it's not your boss because this research suggests that we like being with our friends the most, followed by our relatives and our partner and our children, then our clients, our colleagues, and we'd rather be alone than with our boss. So sorry if there's any bosses here. Um, I'm a boss in some parts of my work, so I find that a bit hard to hear, but um, there's a bit of a hierarchy. But I think the idea here is that social relationships are really vital. So people who had stronger social relationships um, actually live longer. So when we look at um, older adults, those who are in having a good so social network actually live longer and they are healthier during that time as well. So that's amazing, I think, just the power of social relationships. So, what time in the day are we happiest, unhappiest? Well, what, what has been demonstrated by researchers is that we get happier as the day goes along. Well, there's some blips during the day, so kind of after lunchtime and an hour after we've woken up, we, our happiness levels do dip down. Um, what, what they do, actually, is they give people pages, little... Um, you could do it on a smartphone now and they sort of alert them and they say how happy are you now and they'll be able to track people then across the day what makes us unhappy what are the situations that make us unhappy stress yeah anxiety so kind of how we respond to things in the world tired or hungry yep what about in terms of our environment what environments are stressful other people i think you've probably covered all of my images here so I've got here commuting. So being out of control um, is a very stressful situation. You don't know when your train is going to get in. Um, feeling like you don't have much control, being in a confined space perhaps as well. And it could be smelly, that's true. <laughs> so the one at the end, that one is representing our relationships. So if we're not getting on well with people, this is something that makes us unhappy. And the one in the middle here is a kind of open plan office um, and that's sort of representing not having much control over our environment. So that's a little bit about what makes us unhappy. So what we're going to have a look at now is the work that Martin Seligman, he's the founding father of positive psychology, the work that he's done around happiness. And he came up with this special formula. So he he, he's written a couple of books about this now. Um, and you can get hold of them quite easily second-hand on Amazon if you're interested in reading more. Um, if you search for, for his name, you'll be able to find, find out um, a bit more. But Seligman's really interesting because he's a psychologist who was working in the field of depression. And he published loads of hundreds of studies over a 30-year career, all about... Um, depression, what goes wrong for people with depression, um, what might be causing their problems and difficulties. And he, he sort of realised after a conversation um, with his daughter that perhaps he, he needed to shift his attention. Perhaps he was focusing on too much the deficits and maybe he needed to look at the other side, what makes people happy as a way to support people who were struggling with their mood. And so Seligman um, was in a very fortunate position, actually. At the time, he was the president of a, a, an association in America um, for psychology. And as the president, he was able to give a speech and say, 
this is a new field of psychology, positive psychology. Let's try and look at the good stuff rather than dwelling on deficits and problems. So what Seligman has found in his um, research is that it seems to be a number of different factors. It's not just one thing that makes us happy. I'm pretty sure we've already decided that ourselves. It's a number of different areas. And he's given it this name, PERMA. So this is to help us remember what all the components, all the ingredients are. So the first one is about pleasure and positive emotion. And then we've got engagement, relationships, meaning and accomplishments. And Seligman talks about flourishing or subjective well-being as measures of happiness, as, as proxies of happiness. Um, so this is what we're going to have a look at now. We're going to see what the research has found in all of these different areas. So be on the lookout for things that you might be doing in these different areas that you could do more of. And be on the lookout for strategies and ideas that you think, hmm, maybe I could give that a try. You're listening to a lecture from the Enfield Thinks pop-up learning series by Bert Beck, University of London. So let's have a look at P, pleasure and positive emotion. Well, what can we do to get more pleasure and positive emotion in our life? Well, one of the things that... <coughs> Uh, one of the findings in the research literature is about savouring. So savouring is a bit like, you know, when you savour a food and you really taste it and get the most out of it and you think about the taste. It's the same thing really here. It's just about being more aware of what's going around, on around you, dedicating more attention to pleasure. So has anyone tried mindfulness? So this is a skill, really, that you can develop where you get really good at focusing on one thing in the present moment, purposely paying attention to it. And of course, your mind will wander. Everyone's mind wanders. That's totally normal. But it's about being more skilled at bringing your mind back to one thing and paying attention to that, being curious about what it is. And often, if you start doing some mindfulness, they get you practicing focusing on your breath just focusing your attention on that one thing. And it, it sounds, um, it might sound a little bit unusual because in our modern life, we're all over the place, aren't we? We're thinking about this, probably as I'm giving this talk, you'll be thinking about what am I having for dinner tonight? Have I taken the bins out? Or I've forgotten to leave food for the cat? You know, probably billions of things. But in mindfulness, it's about savouring really because we're trying to focus down our attention on one thing and really pay attention to it, really observe it, be curious about it, notice it. Um, and as our mind naturally wanders to other things, we just gently bring it back to that one thing. And this has been associated with greater positive emotion. In fact, people who are really skilled at mindfulness, if we put them in one of those brain scanners, their, their brain is working a little bit differently to other people. So it can actually change your brain. It's amazing, really, what it could do. And when we're doing savouring, we might be going out on a nice walk and trying to look at all the positive things, all the things that we like. Colours, perhaps. We could look out for particular colours, particular flowers, noises, any, using all of your senses to try and immerse yourself in that experience. 
often when we're walking along, we're looking down, aren't we? But in savouring, we could try and become aware of what's up. Not, you know, walking like this because we might fall over, but um, looking around at the tops of the buildings and seeing something different. So dedicating more attention to pleasure. So here are some of the other ways that um, these researchers have found helpers to do more savouring. Sharing with others. So seek out other people to share your experiences. It's making me think of your walk with your friend earlier. Tell others how much you value the moment. What are you enjoying in this moment right now? This seems to be a very strong predictor of how much pleasure you're experiencing at any one time. Building memories. So um, I don't know about you, but I rarely print out photographs anymore. I'm just keeping them on my phone. Um, but having a look at the photographs on your phone or perhaps printing out some special ones or even taking a mental photograph to really savour a particular moment. And then you can sort of tie it in with that first one, share it with others later, reminisce about that positive event. Another one is called self-congratulation. I think as a culture, um, we're not always that great at doing this, at telling ourselves that we've done something well. We're good at telling ourselves when we've telling ourselves off um, or saying, oh no, you know, no, it was nothing. But actually, um, what positive psychology researchers have found is that congratulating ourselves and saying, gosh, that was a really good effort is really, really, um, it was really useful. And then down here, this is related actually to what we've mentioned before about the mindfulness. So sharpening our perception. So to really savour the moment using all of our senses. What can we smell, hear, touch, taste, feel? To really absorb ourselves in the moment. Because lots of less happy people, their attention is often focused on negative things from the past or the future. And people who tend to report higher levels of happiness report more experiences of being really absorbed in the moment. So sharpening our perception is one way that we could try and emulate that and get more positive emotion in our lives. And being absorbed, not uh, trying not to, I mean, it's hard not to think unless we're really, really good at meditation, um, but try and just sense what's going on around you. What, what are all your senses taking in? So this is about pleasure and positive emotion. But the next um, question I'd like to ask you is how many positive experiences, interac interactions, do you think you would need for every negative one you have? What would it be? Would it be like five negatives, 50 positives, or two negatives, 10 positives? What would the ratio be? Well, what they have demonstrated, and this was research conducted in a business context, is that for a good balance, we need three positives to every negative. Now, this was conducted on business. The study was um, conducted on in a business context. And you are absolutely right. It does vary depending on the person. So later studies have found that with our partner, it might be more like 12 to 1. So <laughs> that's something that we could all work on. Um, but generally, kind of in our day-to-day -day interactions, it's sort of three to one. And actually, what you can do, the person that's conducted this research is called Barbara Fredrickson. 
And Barbara Fredrickson has conducted lots of really interesting studies around positive emotion. She's contributed a massive body of evidence to the literature. And if you go on her website here, positivityratio.com, you can actually have a look at your ratio yourself. And you can see whether you need to do a bit more uh, to, to up those positives. So the idea is that it takes time and effort, but we can actually train ourselves to notice more positives, to look out for those positives, and to get that better balance. I hope some of you are at three to one already. Let's, let's keep our fingers crossed. The next part of the PERMA was called engagement. So remember I mentioned that concept of flow. Now, one of the researchers in positive psychology who's con um, contributed a significant body of evidence on this is called Cheek Sent Me High. And what he's found is that people report feeling happier when they're absorbed in a really engaging experience, when they're really engaged in a task or activity. And it's a bit of a Goldilocks solution. So you don't want a task that's too easy because then you'd just be doing it automatically. But at the same time, you don't want a task that's too hard because it'd be too stressful, too demanding. <coughs> so it has to be something in the middle. So if you can find things like that to do in your day um, and arrange your day around that in, to some degree, then that can be another way to get more positive emotion in your life. So these are the experiences where you start to do something and you become so lost in it that you just lose track of time. You forget you need the toilet, you forget to eat, you're just totally absorbed in it and you, you, you hours could pass by. This is kind of being in the zone. So one thing we could learn from that is to try and seek out more of those activities that give us that sense of flow. And it's it could be in a whole range of areas. It could be in the arts, in sports, um, in through social interaction. Work could be a sense of flow. Um, our relationships, um, anything really that just really grabs you. So that's what, what we talk about when we talk about engagement. And what some of the researchers in, in the area of relationships, so the next letter of PERMA, have found is that um, they've given them these little pages and they've followed them up through the day and they've kind of buzzed them and they've asked them, how happy are you right now and what are you doing? Who are you with? And the research data suggests that people report being happier when they're with other people compared to being on their own. Also, when they're doing something interesting and novel. So hopefully, at least part of this talk is interesting and novel. So that might be a sense of, of a source of happiness for you tonight. So if we've got a choice, we have to try and get ourselves out there and, and be with others. And I think that's what often can be quite tricky if our mood's low. Because often our mood will sort of say, oh, don't go out, stay in. You know, no one will want to be around you anyway. But actually in that situation, we have to try and do the opposite. We have to just try and get out and do something, anything just to try and get a bit of pleasure. And actually what, what the researchers have found is that other people's positivity will rub off on you rather than your negativity in that moment bringing them down. So the next letter in PERMA is M and A, meaning and accomplishments. 
So this is about doing things in line with your values and your goals. So thinking about what's meaningful to you in your life. What really gets you going? What issues, what topics do you really engage with? But also, what are your skills and attributes? What do you have to offer? The research shows that there are different things you can do to, to get a greater sense of meaning and accomplishment. So one of the research studies, um, or a number of research studies actually, have generated data that suggest that if we do small acts of kindness, this can be a really great way to boost our sense of happiness and subjective well-being. And what this means is um, just doing something um, to help other people, opening the door for them. In some of the studies, they had people feeding parking meters, um, <coughs> just doing a random act of kindness. Uh, it's making me laugh actually because when we did the last, when we did this talk in another place, a lady um, said, "Oh, I've seen somebody doing this." Um, she said, "Well, I was just on my bicycle and I was a bit lost, and this man approached me and he said, "Oh, you, you look lost. Can I direct you?" And um, and she said, "Oh, yes, I'd really appreciate that. This is where I'm going to go." And he said, "Oh, oh yes, yes, I know where that is. Yeah, I'll take you there." Um, so they were walking, and they were walking for quite some time, I think it was about 10 minutes, and um, then he said, okay, you're at your destination, this is where it is, um, and then he sort of started to walk off, and then he kind of changed, and he came back, and he said, look, I'm, I'm really sorry, but I'm doing this random acts of kindness thing, and I need to take a photo of you to put it on my <laughs> Facebook to prove I've done a random act of kindness, and she was like, no, I really don't want you to take a picture of me, I feel really uncomfortable, uh, and it was a bit of a tussle about that for a while. And the sort of punchline is great, because she said, and he walked off, and then it dawned on me, he'd actually taken me to the wrong place. <laughs> so <laughs> I just thought that was a really nice story. So the I mean, I think what, what it does illustrate is that the, the random act of kindness, the good stuff that we get out of it, is about how it makes us feel. We don't necessarily need to be sharing it with others. That's, I don't know, I don't think really based on the research literature that would do much more. So perhaps his photo didn't, wouldn't really have helped him. So it has to be things that we're doing for others, doesn't it? That we're doing out of kindness. Um, but yes, it, it is, it's to make you feel good, but it can also help others, that's right. Actually, the research shows that the, if we do at least five of these a week, this is associated with higher levels of happiness. If we can do all of, what, all of them in one day, we feel even better. So see if you can do random acts of kindness. Well, it's also about a sense of connection, isn't it? You're, you're doing something for someone else that connects you to them in a way. And that's a source of happiness. We, we're a tribe. We need to welcome everyone into the tribe, even if we might think they're a little bit on the outside. So the other one is about weighing up our life. And this is kind of about reflecting back on what we've achieved, focusing on our accomplishments. Um, sometimes people do this around New Year, and they might look back on the last year, what have I done, what would I like to work on this year, perhaps. But it's something about weighing up our success, focusing on what we've got rather than what we might potentially think that we lack. Weighing up our strengths. What strengths do you have that you've used to get, get you to where you are now? What are the things that you can do as well as 
or perhaps even a little bit better than some of the people around you. And this is a really interesting part of this positive psychology literature. So um, influenced, I think, by um, uh, diagnostic criteria for illnesses, particularly in the mental health field, Peterson and Seligman, they said, well, we're going to come up with a different inventory. We're actually going to come up with one about people's strengths and virtues. What strengths do they actually have and how could we come up with a really interesting list of those? So this is their um, virtues and character strengths. And you can actually go on um, Martin Seligman's website. I think I've got a, a link for it um, later on. But it's authentic happiness, if you just type in authentic happiness into the search engine. And he's actually got um, an area of the site where you can fill in a questionnaire online and it will give you a report about your character strengths. So it actually gives you some feedback about the things that you've, uh, based on the answers you've given, the things that you're good at. So that's, that's quite a nice way to try and identify some of them. Um, so what strengths might your friends or family or colleagues might identify in you? Nice to think about that. But I think the interesting question here is, what impact might it have on your well-being to actually dwell on your strengths rather than your weaknesses? It's usually only when you're preparing for an interview, isn't it? When you're thinking, oh my gosh, there's going to be that question and they're going to ask me, what are your strengths and weaknesses? And you think, all oh, right, this is what I'm going to say, this is, this is it. And I wonder how much we really mean it. So what do you think, what impact might it have on our well-being to actually focus on our strengths? I think modesty is actually in there as one of the strengths. Here we go, modesty and humility. So that's a strength in itself. Yeah. But yes, I mean, that's an interesting critique of this model because it has been developed mainly in the US, but not, not only, but there is a different cultural way of responding to strengths, isn't there? Um, so this, this one might be a bit more tricky for us, sort of hard British people, but actually what the research suggests is that not just in the US, but in other countries, um, focusing on our strengths is a really good source of positive well-being. <coughs> so if we can sort of bring ourselves out of our comfort zone just to think of one or two, then that can be really useful. This isn't about sort of standing up there going, I've got this, I've got that. It's just knowing what they are, isn't it, and bringing them to our awareness. Then we might actually act a bit differently. Yeah, I think that's a really nice example. Thank you. And some people have said, well, you know, perhaps there's more strengths than that. There, there probably are. I mean, this is a starting point. But the idea is about trying to just be a bit more aware of them. And then trying to do more things that use your strengths. So more activity, activities or hobbies um, that really utilise your strengths. Um, one of the places where I've given this talk, they were telling me that within their team at work, um, they, they tried to reorganise the tasks so that each person was doing the tasks that most closely matched their strengths. But the basic idea here is practice. So just as you'd have to practise the violin before you can master it, it's the same with having a life that's lived according to your strengths and your values. So trying to just be more aware of them 
is definitely the first start. Um, and surrounding yourselves with people that share those same, same sorts of values and really being able to use your strengths is the next level. So the next little bit of research that I'd like to share with you has also been conducted by Seligman. And he was interested in why some people were more optimistic than others. <clears throat> and his idea is that perhaps optimism might be explained by a particular way of looking at the world, a particular way of explaining particular circumstances. So optimistic people tend to explain the causes of negative events or experiences or situations as relating to a particular set of factors. So to try and illustrate this, I'm going to kind of go from the other direction. So just imagine you came to Birkbeck and you came on my positive, you attended my positive psychology course and we asked people to write an essay. And you wrote that essay and you didn't get, you weren't awarded the mark that you would have liked to have got. It was a bit lower than you were hoping for. Now if you were rather pessimistic, you might say, well, it's all my fault. It's an internal explanation for that event. It's never going to change. I'm never going to get a good mark, even if I carry on with my studies. Uh, so it's stable. And um, you know what? Everything in my life is like this. I'm not succeeding anywhere. So that means it's a global explanation. So this is what's a pessimistic outlook. Now, if you happen to be more optimistic or if you practice this more optimistic explanatory style, you'd say, oh, Amy was having a really bad day. That's why I got the bad mark. It's an external cause. Yeah? <laughs> yep, yep. You'd say, well, you know what? Um, it's just this one essay. I'm, I'm not, it's not going to happen again. I'm sure it's just a one-off. So that means that it's transient, it's sort of temporary. And the other one is that it's specific. It's just this one essay. Everything else in my life's reasonably okay. It do, it's not a kind of indicator of everything else. So that's how optimistic people tend to explain the causes of um, negative events. They tend to have this more specific transitory and external model of explaining the causes of these events. Does that make sense to people? Yes. Yeah. Um, and what Seligman has found is that it's actually possible to train ourselves to, if we're not naturally optimistic, because <coughs> um, we will vary amongst the population, it's possible to train ourselves away from that natural pessimistic style to a perhaps slightly more optimistic style. And through practice, through kind of stepping back and thinking, well, yes, I could look at it like that, but I probably feel quite upset, we might be able to think, well, it's happened. Perhaps if I have a different explanation, I won't feel as bad. Yeah? And Seligman's um, ideas here have been translated into training um, programs in schools actually and there have been a number of studies conducted here in the UK and in other countries as well particularly the US um, which have looked at whether it's possible to teach this to young people and actually it's had some success so I think that's really quite positive finding. So this is what Seligman calls learned optimism. 
So rather than thinking, I'm not good at my job, I'm a failure at most aspects of my job, why do I bother? <clears throat> we have to dispute our own internal thoughts. Because if somebody else said that to us, we'd be like, oh, I'm not that bad, am I? I'm quite good at my job. I'm not a failure. I'm bothering because I like it and I want to do well at it. Yeah? But if we do it to ourselves, it's, it's a bit easier, isn't it, to go, oh, yeah, I'm sure my brain's right. So what um, um, Seligman says is that if we could become better at disputing our own negative internal voice, then we might be able to recognise that very pessimistic style and step back and say, mm -mm, I'm going to think of this in a different way. I often tell a, a, it's not a particularly funny joke, but it's sort of the only joke that psychologists maybe have, which is about, um, <laughs> and poor Annette at the back here has heard it a few times, so I'm, I'm hoping she'll laugh. But it's a sort of um, idea of there was this kind of block of uh, flats, and um, outside someone had been walking the dog, and the dog had gone to the toilet all over the pavement, and the owner had not scooped it up, as they should, and um, one of the residents of the block of flats came out um, on their way to work and actually stepped in the dog mess and just really lost it and said, oh, God, this is the worst thing ever. It's all over my shoes. What a mess. I feel terrible now. I don't think I'm even going to bother going to work. And he kind of goes back into the flat um, and, and just doesn't carry on with his day and he feels terrible. And another person comes out and also steps in the dog poo, unfortunately, and starts to say things like, well, someone's put that there to really get at me. They knew I was coming out. Why didn't they clear it up? Why does this always happen to me? I'm not even going to bother trying now. I'm, I'm not even going to go to work. I'm ringing in sick. Goes back into the flat. Doesn't, doesn't carry on with the day. A third, no, just for imagination's sake, this dog obviously had a very large meal the night before and there is still quite a lot of mess on the floor. Um, thank you. <laughs> and the third person comes out and steps in the dog poo and says, thank goodness I'm wearing shoes. And carries on, goes to work and, um, you know, doesn't really bother about it too much. And I think the idea is it's not what happens to you but what you make of it. So it's about your interpretation. I think that was such a lovely example and much more elegant than my sort of dog mess one. Um, the idea that you try and think of things in a different way and the way you respond to them. So the idea from Seligman's research is it's actually possible for us to train ourselves to have these different interpretations and that's associated with higher levels of happiness. So to start sort of wrapping up the talk, um, I'd be really grateful if other people have got ideas that I haven't included here that have boosted their happiness and well-being. But there are some real quick wins that have come out of the research literature. So these are things like focusing on the positives, writing down things that we're grateful for, writing a letter to somebody, thanking them for something that they've done. Don't necessarily even have to give it to them, although that's very nice as well, but expressing gratitude. Volunteering, so doing something for someone else, these random acts of kindness, doing something that helps us to engage ourselves, act in line with our sense of meaning and purpose in life. 
um, surrounding ourselves with people with similar values, similar goals, um, that help us to feel positive in the moment, that we can savour those experiences with. Focusing on positive things. So just writing down every day three positive things is one of the um, interventions, little exercises that positive psychologists have found can really boost our sense of happiness. And that's, that's free, it's cheap, well it's, it's not even costly, is it? Um, and it, it doesn't take up much time, but it has been associated with gains, uh, with living above that set point, that happiness level. Um, so these are some of the quick wins. What you'd like things to look like. Yeah, I think that's a really nice one. Positive statements. A lot of the patients that I work with really like quotations, um, really inspirational quotations, and they, they find that really soothing and really helpful. One of the pieces of research I've, I haven't mentioned, which I think is really good, is just looking at a picture of your favourite person has been shown to increase people's levels of happiness and actually helped them um, in terms of their physical health as well. Um, so that might be a cat, it might be a scene, it could be a person that really brings you a lot of warmth and positive emotion when you look at them. So just looking at that picture every day has been demonstrated to have important increases um, in terms of people's levels of happiness. So I think the idea is if you're stuck in a rut, don't buy a new bike. You don't need to reinvent yourself. Just try a different route. Yeah. So I hope there's been some ideas about some of the new patterns and different responses that people might have. And I just want to end with some research around what helps us to put these things into practice more easily. I'm sure we've all made New Year's resolutions um, before, and perhaps we might walk out of here and think, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Well, let me give you some of the, the tips, actually, that researchers have found make it more likely that we'll stick to our intentions. So breaking down goals into small steps, giving yourself little rewards when you've done something, telling other people what you're trying to achieve. So going home, saying, oh, I'm going to keep a, a journal of three positive things, or I'm going to write a gratitude letter, or I'm going to try and develop a more optimistic explanatory style. Focusing on the benefits of success and keeping a diary of your progress. So these were some of the factors, actually, that help people to um, be more successful in keeping their New Year's resolutions. And I think that says a lot, doesn't it? Because New Year's resolutions are notoriously hard to keep. So perhaps one or two of these might be useful for us trying to do things differently in terms of our happiness and well-being. That was one of the Enfield Thinks pop-up learning lectures, a series to get you switched on to learning by Birkbeck University of London. Thanks to our partners, Enfield Council, Barnet Southgate College, Cable Manor College, the College of Haringey, Enfield and North East London and supported by the Mayor of London. Visit enfieldthinks.co.uk to discover more.